All right, good morning. Yeah, it was Mother's Day. It's, watching the video, it, it kind of filled me with a little bit of sadness just because we don't get to watch the usual chaos of when there's a, you know, a stack of soap up here at the front and the kids come up here like a raving horde to, to grab the right colored one for their, their mother and then hand them out to all the other ladies of the church that don't have little kids to come pick them up for them. But, uh, but yeah, what a, what a nice event to celebrate our mothers. Uh, today's actually kind of a, a special Mother's Day for our family too. As, uh, a couple days ago, we got to tell Madeline that she's no longer going to be the youngest person in our family. So come, come, yeah, come December, there will be another Pearson. So we now officially are more than an aisle of this church. So we'll have to, you know, work on a bigger sanctuary or something. But uh, yeah, today I'll be reading from 2 Samuel chapter 17 and 18. This is the, the second half of Absalom's coup against his, his father, David. And I was, you know, really trying to tie this theme of Mother's Day into the passage, but really what we're talking about today is, is poor communication, hurt feelings, me-first attitudes, tattletales, and a he-started-it situation. So I really couldn't think of how that related to mothers at all. Um, and in fact, it might be due to the fact that there's almost a complete lack of mothers involved in this story that it gets as bad as it does. So, so there's two, two main stories we're going to talk about today in the two chapters. The first is we're going to kind of go into this inside story of what, what happens in Absalom's war council and how it ultimately fails due to some bad advice. And then there's going to be a second part to it, which is going to be the battle between Absalom and David's forces in the forest of Ephraim and then how Absalom ultimately meets his end. We've got kind of these two main narratives. There's lots of small stories and details. We're going to kind of be covering a lot, and I'm, I'm not going to be totally reading the verses, but paraphrasing a lot to move through it. Um, but uh, let's just open in, in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for today. And Lord, I'm just just struck by the honor of of being able to stand up here and just speak the words that you've you've put into my heart this week and just I just thank you that you are a living God and that you do speak to us that it is not it is not me reading a book and paraphrasing a story that 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 makes this have weight but it is it is the living words that you you put in the the connections that you give us that, that make your word so powerful. And Lord, we're just so honored that we in any way can be part of your kingdom. So Lord, we just pray today that these words would be your words, that your words would hit our hearts where they need to hit. And uh, Lord, we just, yeah, just pray for a, a great word. Amen. All right. So our story is going to continue where Rich left us last week with Absalom having slept with his father's concubines in the full sight of the city, fulfilling that part of the, the consequences that David was told after his sin with Bathsheba. And David's fled the city, um, but he's left some key saboteurs behind, Hushai, Jonathan, and Hahamaz. 
And just so you know, I'm going to pronounce every one of those names a different way every time I do this because you can ask my wife, I can't pronounce normal words correctly, and uh, I definitely struggle with Hebraic names. So here's a map of where we currently are. So we're kind of looking in the, in, the, in the bottom left corner there, but Absalom has, has left Hebron, and he's moved up towards Jerusalem. David has fled Jerusalem and is making his way uh, north and east through Bahuram, where we remember that he gets yelled at by Shimei. He then continues through Gilgal and then stops exhausted on the west side of the Jordan. So of the saboteurs that are left behind, Hushai is one of David's counselors. And we know that Hushai really wanted to come with David. He wanted to be part of David's entourage. He thought his place was with the king. But David asks him to stay behind and to give Absalom bad advice. So of David's many counselors, Hushai is one of the main ones, but the other one, or the, the kind of the premier counselor, is Epithophel. And he has gone over to Absalom's side. We know that he is very personally motivated against David because he is Bathsheba's grandfather. And it is he that specifically gives the advice to Absalom to sleep with David's concubines. So in, in verse 16, uh, 23, we see that Epithophel's advice was considered like that of God by both David and Absalom. So he's a very wise man. His, 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 his word carries weight, it carries value. And we also know that David is so concerned by the value of his advice that the only prayer of David that's recorded in, in, these, in these chapters is David praying, please make the advice of Epithophel foolish. So we're going to kind of pick up our story, and Epithophel is sitting in front of Absalom in the war council, and he's asking for permission to take 12,000 men and hunt down David before he can get to safety. So he's advising a surgical strike to go and kill David quickly so that the people will not be divided between two kings, but only remain to be gathered behind the remaining leader, Absalom. And this is kind of an interesting point because we have to remember Absalom is actually the eldest remaining son of David. So I've just kind of put together a, a quick list of David's 19 sons, only about four of which I can pronounce. So the first six are born in Hebron. This is when David was, was king in the south or, or Judah. And then the remainder when he in his time in Jerusalem. Now, so once Amnon was killed by Absalom, funnily enough, we then have another son, Caleb, or Daniel, and we, all we really know about him is that he was born to Abigail of Carmel, and there's no other record of his life. So it's, it's pretty straightforwardly assumed that he died young because all of the other kind of first sons of David all have their parts and have their verses and, and get mentioned other than him. And if we kind of skip way down the list, we then see Solomon at number 10. So, you know, at the risk of giving you a spoiler, he, he ends up being king after David. So at this time, Absalom is somewhat the, the heir apparent, and 
So this coup is really driven by his pride. It's driven by his broken relationship and his lack of respect for his father, David, that he is pushing this ahead of its time. So back to the war council, and Epithophel's plan of this surgical strike just gets widespread approval. Everyone loves it. They think it's the greatest idea since sliced bread, which doesn't actually exist yet at that time. But then something kind of curious happens, and Absalom all of a sudden decides to hear the vice of Hushai. Now, this is kind of curious because, like I said, Epithophel is the premier counselor, Everyone just thinks he gives the best advice. And the scene tells us that Hushai is not even in the room with the war council. He's not trusted to be in there. So they have to bring him in. They don't, they don't trust him completely. They still somewhat think he may be on David's side. So in comes Hushai, and he's like a, a prequel to Esther. He's entering the room before a king, and he has to make a case knowing that he is at every disadvantage, but that his message is critical. So Hushai has just met with David, right? We have this whole scene where he asked to go with David. David tells him, no, you need to stay behind. I need you to give bad advice. But he's also seen David and knows that David is in no condition to lead or fight a battle at this time. So the war council brings Hushai up to speed on Epithophel's plan. And knowing that the time for caution is gone, Epithel, sorry, Hushai does not hesitate, but just boldly calls Epithophel's plan a bad idea. Like, it, it's just, he doesn't try and worm around it. He just literally calls it out as a bad idea. It's kind of this amazing scene to, to picture. And he then, is, he then goes into his own case. So he reminds Absalom of the, the reputation of David and his mighty men. They're fierce warriors. They're experienced. He likens them to bears caught in a den. They're, they're extremely dangerous when their back's against the wall, or, or in this case, their back's up against the Jordan River. And then he starts to build this succinct and flattering case with really poetic language and he's directly appealing to Absalom's pride. So the same thing that's caused Absalom to bring this coup forward ahead of its time, Hushai keys in on that and really goes after it. So Hushai proposes that Absalom wait, then gather the whole nation to himself so that Absalom can personally lead the army, hence get all the glory, and that his army will be as numerous as the sand that is by the sea. So we see a little bit of a, a hint to Abraham. And the army will be as the dew on the ground. And they will hunt David wherever he goes and pull down into the valley any city that he hides in. So he really pitches this idea of this mighty army and Absalom at the, at the beginning of it. So Hushai then leaves the room while the war council now debates these two options. And before even hearing the final decision, Hushai sends a message to the other two people that are left behind, Jonathan and Ahamaz, who are staying just outside the city due to the risk of them being recognized by Absalom's troops. So J and A, <laughs> as I've now shortened it, then end up getting hidden in a well by this clever uh, female servant. 
they avoid capture, and then eventually they get the message to David that David cannot stop where he has at the, at, at the west side of the river, but he needs to push through, get across the river, so that now the river is between him and whoever comes after him. Basically, he needs some, some fortification between him. And of course, he's doing this because he doesn't know which way the result's going to go. He's, he's pitched his story, but I think there's some uncertainty in him because he really is up against Epithophel. And he knows the wisdom of Epithophel's advice. But then surprisingly, Absalom and his council actually decide to go with Hushai's plan. And we kind of have to ask why. Now, Hushai's made a great argument, but it's pretty stretched to say it's better. And then as to overcome a previously made decision and the weight that, that the advice of Epithophel carries. However, verse 14 makes it very clear. The Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Epithophel so that the Lord might bring disaster upon Absalom. Wow. I, I don't know about you guys, but I do not feel like it's a very good start to your reign when... <laughs> The Lord quotes saying, I am going to bring you harm. (laughs) But this is such a strong answer to David's earlier prayer. And you might want to say that Absalom had the smartest man, but David had the better prayer. So we then kind of have our story interrupted. There's a single verse in, in chapter 17, verse 23, that then tells us that Epithophel upon hearing that his advice is not followed, goes to his house, puts his things in order, and then hangs himself. And some people kind of think that this is because of his pride, that he feels he's been supplanted by Hushai, and I don't think that's what's happening here. I think Epithophel has put all of his eggs into Absalom's basket. He personally advised on the scene with the concubines, And he is wise enough to recognize that David still has too much support. And now that he has time to reset, Absalom's coup is effectively over. And then we literally go forward into the chapter and we see that David's support is confirmed in the following verses as it lists the large support of materials and food that comes from Shobi, Mashir, and Barzillai. And if you actually look on the map here, you can see where they're from. So Shobi is from, on the map it shows as Rabbith ben Ammon. And the Bible verse will probably actually list it as from Rabbah. I had to actually ask Rich about this this morning, why the names always have to be different. Nothing kind of lines up. And then we see that Lodabar is right up near the top, uh, just to the right of the Jordan River. And Rojilem is just to the south and east of that. So we can see that as David has moved north and east, the north and east have come to him and brought him support. All right, so that's all of just chapter 17. (laughs) So now we're going to go on to 18. So David's preparing his troops. He organizes his army into three sections with Joab, Abishai, and Atai, all leading separate divisions. And David then says, I myself will certainly go out with you, but is instantly overruled by his commanders who argue how important his safety is. 
thus again somewhat validating the really good advice that Epithophel gave <laughs> to Absalom. Now, interesting, David then says, sure, whatever seems best to you, I will do. And I've put like six question marks after this because, so first David doesn't defend the city. Then he makes a a really kind of rookie campaign mistake and stops on the wrong side of a river. And then now he's just kind of resignedly accepting his commander's advice over his own desires. This is not the David that we met so many chapters before. David then continues in his last command to his three commanders and his army as they're moving out is to ask that they deal gently with Absalom, a.k.a. don't kill him. Somewhat interesting advice before the battle for a nation. So the battle takes place in the forest of Ephraim, and there's not really a lot of details about the battle except to say that the slaughter was great, David's armies routed Absalom's, and that the forest consumed as many people as the sword. So we can imagine a fairly rough environment to have a battle, and that David's experienced troops had chosen this ground to give them all the advantages, and hence their victory. And now we're going to reach the pinnacle of our story. Absalom is riding in the forest and, comes up and gets come upon by servants of David. He attempts to ride away on his mule and is caught by his hair or his head um, in the branches of a massive oak tree and is left helpless hanging between the sky and the earth. The mule just continues running. It's safe. Don't worry about it. Now... One of David's servants, recognizing him, goes back to Joab and informs him of this situation. Now, Joab's response is to ask why the servant has not killed Absalom. That Joab would have rewarded him with ten silver pieces for striking him down. This is approximately a year's wages. The servant replies, not for a thousand silver pieces would I strike down the king's son, against his command. You heard him. Pretty blunt, pretty clear. But Joab decides to ignore this servant, ignore his warning, and taking three spears, he thrusts them into Absalom and then has his ten armor bearers strike down and kill Absalom. Now, if the spears and the ten armor bearers seem like overkill for a helpless enemy stuck in a tree... It's because it is. Make no mistake, this is not a death in battle. This is the murder of a helpless enemy that is unable to fight back. But Joab, by having his ten armor bearers also attack Absalom, he's introducing uncertainty as to who actually killed Absalom, who actually swung that blow that his life ends at. And And what he's trying to do is introduce a very weak legalistic defense, but he's trying to avoid being named as Absalom's murderer by David. And then having this same blood of an avenger law that has plagued David's family since Ammon enacted, which would then in complete irony be up to David to avenge Absalom against Joab. (laughs) So it gets really messy. (laughs) But 
I believe the reason that Joab kills Absalom is because he fears David's forgiveness. He fears, and maybe even knows, that David will likely forgive Absalom. And because he no longer trusts David's judgment, he takes that decision into his own hands. Joab decides that Absalom is too big a risk to David, and so ends that threat. Now, in a big scheme of things for the nation of Israel, this is kind of likely a good reasoning because now you've again only got one king, the people can come behind it, there's not this division. But Joab also ends any chance that David has of reconciliation. Back to the story, Joab then calls his army back from pursuing the remains of Absalom's army. He buries Absalom's body in the forest, and then messengers are sent out to inform David of the victory. And upon hearing of Absalom's death, David is overcome by grief and walks into his chamber inconsolable. Not the victory celebration that everyone was expecting, And that's basically how the chapter ends. So in in studying all these various stories and subplots, the Lord brought me to a theme of of forgiveness and, and the consequences of sin. So we know of David's first sin with Bathsheba. And then we see this cascading series of events that take place for years after the initial event. And all of the main characters in this story, and in fact the entire nation of Israel, were all directly affected because of David's initial actions. So Hushai was forced to risk his life as a spy, providing duplicitous counsel to the enemy. And we know it is only the hand of God that carried him safely out of this. David had put him into an impossible situation. Apithophel is the head counselor, He watches his granddaughter be dishonored, so he breaks with David eventually, supports Absalom. He then gives Absalom advice that pushes him into this potentially irreparable situation with his father David. Finally, his his need for this Avenger revenge makes him personally want to hunt down and kill David, the failure of all of which leads to his suicide. Joab was forced to expose his friend and fellow comrade Uriah to battle and then pull back, resulting in his death. So David somewhat made him complicit in his death. And years later, I think it's this event that has damaged his trust in his king. And so we see him starting to take larger and larger actions on his own regard. He he starts to make events that are shifting the nation. First, by sending the Lady of Tekoa to David, which then resulted in Absalom being allowed back into Jerusalem. Then he tells David to stay back from the battle. And finally, he makes the decision to kill Absalom in spite of David's orders otherwise. And this really brought me to a key question, which is, how often are we like Joab? How often do we not want or like to see God's forgiveness of others. We want to see Avengers justice. We want to see ultimate justice. We want to see that 
the crime, the punishment fits the crime of how bad we judge their sins to be. We're like the second prodigal son. We're angry because our father throws a party for the son that has returned. And we feel that our good behavior is cheapened by lavish forgiveness given to another. Then finally, we get to David. So the David that we read about in these chapters is not the confident young man that strode out against Goliath with the boldness of the Lord or the new king that brought the ark into his new capital and initiated a whole new tabernacle of worship, singing, dancing. Instead, we have a man that is broken by the guilt of his sin and the consequences of his actions. Even worse, this guilt is still preventing him from making good decisions going forward. David has forgotten that if God has forgiven him, that he also needs to accept that forgiveness. Yes, he will still have the consequences to bear. Yes, he will still feel guilty at times for his past actions. But as Roy T. Bennett said, the past is a place of reference, not a place of residence. The past is a place of learning, not a place of living. God does not ask us to live in our sins. He does not ask us to relive the guilt of them over and over and over again. That is the literal description of hell, and that is what he is trying to save us from. I believe that David has confused his forgiveness with the ending of his consequences. For how often when we pray for forgiveness, do we really just want the consequences and the guilt to stop, to be relieved from our misery? So reading Psalm 43, which David wrote at the time of, of Absalom's rebellion, we, we really get an insight into the anguish of his spirit as he is crying out to God and not hearing an answer. Vindicate me, God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. Save me from the deceitful and the unjust person, for you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go around mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. They shall lead me. They shall bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling places. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you on the lyre. God, my God, why are you in despair, my soul? And why are you restless within me? Wait for God, for again I will praise him in the help of his presence, my God. Did God reject David? By no means. We can actually see his prayers being answered by knowing the whole story. But the enemy has found a knife in David's back. It's his guilt. And he is twisting it endlessly. He is using David's sins to undermine his moral authority. And this has led to David not dealing with Ammon or with Absalom. So while as a king, his moral authority might have been impaired at this time, and David cannot judge Absalom for the actions against Ammon that David should have taken, but as a father, David still had the authority and the obligation to go to his son, to tell of his testimony, 
and to seek reconciliation for the hurt he had caused Absalom. For it's, it's in our testimony that it's in our testimony of the consequences of our sins, that forgiveness of our Lord, that we get a new authority. Not an authority to judge, for only God has that, but an authority to speak that truth of our experience, how we were broken, how we suffered, and how the Lord poured mercy and grace and brought our sins onto himself to not let our past affect our future with the Lord. I, I loved how Greg just, he, he just called it out a couple weeks ago, and he just said, you are not the person you were in the past. So those actions you made in the past, you need to stop letting them hold you back from the future. We all come sinners before the Lord, and everyone, yes, everyone, can have those sins forgiven. Stated bluntly, David was a rapist and a murderer. In our human eyes, he was the worst of the worst. Yet God forgave him because of his love for all of us and because David still had work to do for God's kingdom. He had to father Solomon with Bathsheba of all people. He had to receive the vision for the first temple and gather the resources, or start to gather the resources to build it. And it was David's skills in war that gave Israel peace from its enemies and allowed Solomon to never fight a battle. So do we want justice? Or to see God's kingdom come through forgiveness? Now this is not unique to David. You know, I was thinking about this and like, do we think the apostles would really have liked to see Paul flogged, stoned, maybe even crucified for the deaths that he caused, for the pain that he caused the, the church? I think the answer is yes. I think they struggled with that. But the kingdom was on earth whenever Paul went, and it was due to that conversion. It was due to his testimony. He was walking proof of forgiveness from the worst of sins. Now, David was probably going to forgive Absalom because he knew the depths of his own sin and what God had forgiven him for. So what is your past holding you back from? I challenge you to use your testimony to speak of your failures and then speak of the God that loves you, that died for you, that forgave you, and really wants you to be part of building his kingdom here on earth. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for, for the words that you have given today, Lord. We just thank you for the forgiveness. We just thank you that from the moment of first sin in the garden, you have just been in a process of pouring out endless forgiveness on us, endless mercy, endless grace upon a people that don't always hear you well, that, that spurn your love, that, that do things that you've asked us not to. And yet, you consistently and always invite us back. You bring us back into forgiveness, and you move us towards reconciliation with you. And 
Lord, even more than that, you, you desire us to then be an active part of building your kingdom. You want us to use our sins, our failures, and to use those as a testimony to show your glory, to show how you can forgive all. And so, Lord, we just, just pray this week, Lord, that you would just speak into people's hearts, people that have been held back by their feelings of being inadequate, that their feelings that they are not worthy, Lord. Lord, we just speak to Moses having committed murder, David having committed murder. The, the Bible is filled of your mighty men who they were not mighty because they were perfect. They were mighty because you gave them a testimony of your forgiveness and that they walked in your will and that they, they listened and that they prayed into your will. So Lord, we just pray that this week you would just speak into those who, who need to get over this hump, that need to break through this wall that their sin has put around them, Lord, that, that need, to be, need to be activated into your kingdom to do your work. We pray all this in your name. Amen. I'm sure glad that it's God's authority that's ruling the world. It's easily obscured by all the human decisions that are made and many, many wrong decisions that are made, but in the end, it's God's decision that rules. And Alex did just a wonderful job taking us through a very intricate, layered story. This is a, a dynastic story. Um, this could be um, a movie of epic, painful nature. We'll go one way or the other, and we'll claim one side as the right way. So sometimes we can be over-merciful, and sometimes we can be overly truth-oriented. We can be legalistic, or we can be into license. But in this story with David, we see the perfect coming together of mercy and truth. God said to David through Nathan, you have committed grievous crimes, murdering someone and committing adultery, but you will not die. That was mercy. But there is also the perfect blend of truth in that there's going to be consequences here in our lives in which we become a testimony to him of his mercy and in our life, how our story reflects this perfect, perfect blend. So Jesus, we thank you um, for how the Bible speaks to us and how it's practical and how it speaks into the chapters and it speaks into the intricacies of the relationships that we walk through. Holy Spirit, would you just apply it afresh to our hearts for those that have been quickened today, something that you need to do based on what you heard, make sure to follow through. Don't let it just fall to the side, but make sure you follow through. So we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the declaration of your word. We bless you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a great week, everyone. We look forward to seeing you next week online, but we're getting one week closer to seeing each other in person. So let's pray for that. Blessings.